Spooks with Denzel Myrick and Douglas Skelton. And welcome to Spooks. Spooks, S-B-O-O-K-S. And it's the second, the second episode of the new, the brand new, revamped, stylish, slick podcast that you've never known before. With me is my eternal host, Douglas Skelton. How are you today, Dougs? I'm fine. How are you? Well, I'm just the, my usual self, really. Um, nothing. Everything's just the same, you know. I'm still, I, I'm still reeling from the success of our last podcast. Oh, it was fabulous! It fabulous. Was, you're putting on that that Fife Robertson voice again. I know. I know. I, I was getting all lovey there. Yes, yeah, you were doing very, very well there. Um, no, it was went down very well, and thank you all for your comments. Remember to subscribe to Spooks on your podcast platform of choice. We're we are on uh, Spotify. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Google Podcasts. We are on Podcast Republic, and many, many, many more. All so if you, over the place. Well, I mean, you're a bit all over the place, but I'm perfectly all right. Uh, yes, it's mm. went, went, went very well. And thank you to Ian for all his, his hard work and joining us. We've got another special guest today. Oh, yes. A very special guest. Um, not only is she a writer, she's a traveller. She's a, a doyen of the legal system, both on the prosecution side and on the defence side. But we shall speak to her very shortly. Yeah. Until we do, I'll ask Douglas. Douglas, what have you been up to this week? Well, just you know the usual pottering about. But last weekend, uh, um, I was up in Stirling for uh, Bloody Scotland. I chaired a panel on on Friday night with with our friend uh, Neil Lancaster and our, our other friend James Oswald, as well as uh, our two friends. <laughs> Margaret Kirk and Marion Todds, which uh, it was fun. It was good. They were all great. Bloody Scotland, uh, that's, a, that, that's a crime festival, isn't it? That's a crime Douglas? festival in Stirling. Yes, it's Scotland's right. international crime festival. Goodness. Um, so you, you would have enjoyed that? Yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good to get back. It was also good to get back, back, you know, out in the road again after, you know, the past 18 months. And uh, nice to be face-to-face with readers rather than, than, than doing it digitally. Uh, and I've realised how much I'd missed all of that. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you're a real doyen of the circuit being, well, hitherto being the default host of many, many events. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But those those days are gone now. There, yeah, there's a there young... Others, yes, other younger um, hosts are, are coming up now. Young chap called Whitelaw I heard was very good. Yes, I've heard that as well. Mm-hmm. I think you should maybe spend more time in your beard and perhaps you too can maintain your preeminent role as hostess with the mostest. Nobody ever asked me to host anything. No, no. I wonder why, Denzel. I, I don't know. Why. I mean, I, I did host you once at yes. Granton, Spain, 2019, and you you just turned on me. I turned on you. you just, dear listener, Denzel hosted um, a panel of uh, Michael J. Malone and myself. Michael got all the easy questions, and I got all the tough ones, the really tough questions. 
And I'm sure if sat there like Blofeld, taking trying to take over the world. I'm sure if Malky Maloney is listening to this, he will know full well that that is not that the I truth. I speak the truth. Yes, not at all. Full well. well, the problem was I had to act in your your the play what you wrote the previous evening, and um, that I was still haunted by that experience. <laughs> As, so it was, you, it was payback. Now, you didn't have to act in it. You you were invited and you readily accepted, if I remember. I think until, readily. Until you saw the dress rehearsal. Yeah, you, I think. Your face yeah. was an absolute picture of my wife, My wife keeps telling me that. She says, you should have seen your face when they were doing that rehearsal. You know the I've picture, the, you know the painting, the screen, the, the, the bench painting? That was yeah. what you were like during the rehearsal. Like a, what have I got myself into? But I had to I recall, assure you that it would be all right on the night. I recall we both, we both, uh, you, you, were, you were so confident that I was going to turn up that you had to send Michael Malone to come and get me just in case I was going to not bother. Yeah, yeah. He comes and says, uh, hey, come on, you've got Douglas doesn't think you're going to turn up. And I said, well. Nothing like Michael. That's really my that's how Michael talks. He's like, hey, I'm a great guy, I'm laid back, I'm cool, going to the gym a lot, drink coffee. That's it. Me, it's Michael. Michael's a, Michael Malone, ladies and gentlemen, is the the most laid back person that any of us know, isn't he, Doug? Yes, yes, and he's an absolute gentleman as well. He is indeed a gentleman. He is indeed a, a well-dressed man, too. You never see him without a was coat on. He's very dapper. Very dapper. Well, d- dappers usually applied to people who are small. I wouldn't say he was not. He was actually, you know, he was small. No, he's not small. But <clears throat> er- Ernie Wise was referred to as being dapper, for instance. Is that right? Is that right? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. I didn't know it referred to people as uh, you know of of any sort of. De- well, I, 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 I don't think it necessarily has to be, but I think that. Um, you know, it's become that way. It's become a, a, a reference to people who are small small in stature and, and well, tidy looking. Well, dapper little chap, etc. Well, Michael is tidy looking, Un- unlike me, who, who is never tidy looking. Indeed, you're not, Douglas. One but of anyway. the most slovenly people I know. <laughs> what have you been up to? Oh, I'm writing the 10th daily novel, mm-hmm. The Death of Remembrance. I am busy. Um, with um, promote the promotion of Terms of Restitution, which of course is out in your shops and on online now, my new gangster novel. Uh, and it's also now becoming available to pre-order in paperback. I noticed yesterday it's already out on Waterstones for pre-order and I dare say other stockers, including that big place and online will follow on soon. Yes. So... You can now pre-order the paperback of Terms of Restitution. That's good news. That's good news. And if, yeah, I, I, I am very, very keen in this. Very keen. And we've had, spent, I've had some great feedback for it. Um, I must be honest. Um, unless you're a theatre critic, people, people seem to really enjoy it. I've got to say that I, I found it okay. Um, you know, I, I thought it was, it was perfectly fine. The question is, if you're a theatre critic. Why the hell are you reviewing books? Stick to the stage. That's my that's my motto for theatre critics everywhere. Don't review books. Yeah. Stick to the stage, Joy, whoever you are. Yeah. Anyway, 
I've sent my message loud and clear. She will have to indeed. Anyway, so we're today we're in the midst of about to welcome a a woman who has written many best-selling novels, both under her own name and another, as I'm sure she'll talk about. Uh, A lady who has so many accomplishments, it's hard to quantify them all. Uh, somebody who we all admire as writers, widely admired in the writing community, and a jolly nice, nice woman at that. What do you think, Douglas? Oh yeah, yeah, she's a, an absolutely brilliant writer, and you know, a, a really nice person. And uh, I'm sure this interview is, is going to be absolutely fascinating. I'm sure it is too. Well, without more ado, we should welcome our special guest. And with us today, as we've mentioned, the wonderful Helen Fields. Helen, how are you this fine day? I'm very good, actually. I've got my cup of tea, I've got my socks off, I am laid back in the sofa and um, having a lovely time. Douglas doesn't own a pair of socks. Socks <laughs> off? What sort of way is that to talk to a best-selling author and Denzel? So <laughs> You wish. Um <laughs> Yeah, well, socks off. I mean, I did a bit of that in the eighties. I remember um, it was it was big in the eighties. You used to have the brogues and the socks off. Do you remember oh, that? No. You'll be too far too young. Um, but but it was a great fashion statement, and but very very uncomfortable. You know, it'll come back. It always comes round again. Give it, it give it another indeed. twenty years. If you're, now, if you're hearing Helen uh, banging here, Helen, it's because our neighbours are having their roof redone and it, it is amazingly loud. We've done our best to deaden the sound, but it's like living through some kind of apocalypse. So fear not, we shall press on. Mm-hmm. Now, you are in the unique position. I know a bit about policing and uh, from the prosecution side. But you know it from both sides, both as a prosecutor um, and defence. Yeah, Tell us, that, that must be a great advantage when you're, when you're writing books. It is, actually. And um, it's a peculiarity of the English legal system that, um, you know, as an independent barrister, you get to do both. And it's the, the, what we call the cab rank rule, which is that um, you don't get to choose which case you pick up next, whichever one comes into the queue. Um, you are given by your clerks and you take it, whether it's a prosecution case or a defence case. Um, but I was really lucky. So I also did um, courts martial work. So I got to um, defend for um, people actively in the army and the Air Force and, and Navy. Um, and I did, um, uh, you know, a really diverse range of stuff, which is brilliant um, when you're wanting to to write books. I mean, it, you know, it's one thing to know the procedure, but it's the other thing to have been there and just been able to pick up, you know, the atmosphere and those really peculiar characters um, and to, to just experience it because it adds something, I think, when you come to write it later that you can't get, however well you might know the law or the procedure from a book, um, it, it doesn't give this sort of colour and texture that it, it, you get when you've really been there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, before Douglas jumps in with his, no doubt, unintelligible question, I, I would just like to mention the courts martial thing because my, my dear father 
was courts-martialed. Was he? What for? In the Royal Navy. Um, He was, at that time, uh, a chief petty officer, and he was courts-martialed for hitting a young lieutenant over the head with a table. (laughs) Um, this is this was, I think, nineteen seventy three or seventy four, and um, he was busted down from being a chief petty officer to to a, a, a chief petty officer to a petty officer, yeah, and and all sorts of other ram. I think he was fined and there was all sorts of things, but he ended up retiring as the most senior um, non commissioned rank in the Royal Navy of those days was fleet chief, yeah. But, but, but obviously, I, I was quite young at the time, so this kind of this <laughs> this court, apart from my mother coming through and say saying your father's in the jail, that was <laughs> that was <laughs> that was kind of all I remember about <laughs> about it. But I've I mean, got to ask the obvious question, which is, what was he doing hitting someone over the head with a table? Well, the situation, I mean, I've always found the table rather an interesting implement to use against anybody, but apparently he'd said to this young officer, listen, don't do that, you'll break it. Um, And the young officer proceeded to do it and broke it and then tried to blame my father. So (laughs) my my father, in true naval style, I think it must be a naval thing, whacked him over the head with a table. How's that? Good, yeah, good, you know, that's good. almost a proper defence. I'm very surprised he got found guilty. Well, I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think there was, I think they were more lenient on him than they perhaps they would have been. But, but I also think that per- that maybe the, the commission was much more, um, a, a bit more clout than it has now in terms of equanimity. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how things were in 1973 and 74 in the Navy. I know they'd stopped yeah. using the cat of nine tails, but that's about it. <laughs> Do you know, it's a really brutal system and it's so unlike the court system that you think it's kind of weird being a barrister with all the kind of, you know, the wigs and the gowns and the mm. your honour and, and all the titles and things. But then you go and do a courts martial and you realise that, um, you know, that it, it being in a normal court is easy because being a courts martial is terrifying. You still mm. get paraded in and, you know, you all really look down on coming in as defence counsel. No one speaks to you. No one's nice to you. Um, and it's a it's a horrible set of proceedings. I've got to say, there's nothing friendly or soft around the edges about it. Um, and I remember yeah. I, I, I did a I did a whole trial where um, the issue was uh, brilliantly because I'm not much of a football follower. I'm sad to say, it was um, the offside rule. And uh, while there were still bases in Iraq, some genius had decided to set the Air Force against the Army in a football match. And of course, what was going to go wrong? Um, And someone's arm ended up getting broken on the pitch. And the question was, was it a really bad tackle? Were they offside? And to this day, I don't know what the offside rule is, Um, but we won the case and my client wasn't offside and therefore there was no assault. Uh, but, <laughs> so I walked away quite happy, but believe it or not, they, they actually flew officers back from Iraq to give evidence at this ridiculous football trial. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, it was, took five days, and at the end of the five days, I, I came out really with no better idea about the facts of the case than I had then I went in. <laughs> well, funnily enough, um, I know Douglas isn't a football fan either, and to this day. I don't think, and they've even they've complicated the offside rule even further. 
So <laughs> nobody understands the offside rule at all now, um, which is the strangest thing ever in a in a, a sort of a, a codified game. Now, Douglas, give us the question. But do I, I don't understand football at all? That's you, you put the ball between your two white posts. Is that correct? That's how it works. <laughs> Yes, kind of. And whoever, doing does, well so far. whoever does that the most wins. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a tad more complex than that, as I'm sure Helen uh, will. will uh... and, and when you get a hangnail, you run around, you fall about the, the, the pitch and you, 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 you cry and scream so that the television cameras can see you. Is that correct? Is that the way it works? Uh, that's the second time you've mentioned hangnail in, the, in a podcast. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> are, are yes, you, keep, you said it. The... Are you keeping a tally of these things then? So? No, it just stuck out in my mind. Is Helen won't have a clue what a hangnail is? I, I I do I do, but oh, more do, from right? kind of you know having a teenage girl. Ah well, that's <laughs> that that's that's the stuff. Now d- be ready, Helen. Douglas is I about to ask. This is very exciting. It's thrilling for us both. Brace yourself. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> I don't know if I can stand the tension now. It's a bit much. Don't worry, it's a complete anticlimax. So, I mean, we've talked about your, you know, your legal background, and yet when you turned to writing, you went into the, the sort of police procedural side. Why, why did you not do a, a legal thriller, legal drama? So, um, do you know what I'd been to? I'd been to one of those um, writing festivals somewhere, and um, I, I, you know, in, in the way that we all have, we've all got more um, uh, manuscripts stuck away in our desks than we ever get published. And I'd written um, some historical stuff and things. And um, uh, my actual agent was off on maternity leave. And while I was gone, I thought, I'm just, I can't stop writing for six months. I've got to do, really do something. Um, and somebody at this um, writing conference had said, do you know what we don't need? We don't need any more detectives who are drug, drug addicts. We don't need any more detectives who are alcoholics or whose wife has been killed in a mysterious way. And it, you know, the case is still outstanding. We don't need any more miserable 50 year old detectives you know we're looking for something completely different um and it was literally just that thought and the first thing I thought was well if you're going to turn that on your head you know um I'm going to write the kind of you know sexiest most outrageously good-looking half French half Scottish detective and uh, and uh, and take all of those kind of miserably you know the kind of alcoholism and that sort of thing and turn it around to something that's the complete opposite so it wasn't so much that I chose the genre it's that I had the idea um, and that that idea just took over and having had the idea for this incredibly good-looking French detective in my head I thought where shall I put him and I thought oh, well I'll throw him in the middle of Scotland because that's the place he's really not going to fit in and that you know the the pish taking will be absolutely endless um, because that's what, of course, the Scots, as well as lots of other things, are incredibly good at, as you two know extremely well. What? Um, us? Oh, 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 I know. Um, so that's what it is. It wasn't so much that I chose the genre. I have actually written a, a legal thriller as um, uh, H.S. Chandler, and uh, Degrees of Guilt came out a couple of years ago. So I have gone back and I've used the legal knowledge there. But I have to say, I bring in not so much the kind of legal um, experience that I had, but I do bring in all those interesting characters um, that I dealt with, whether they're kind of corrupt police officers, and I met a couple of those, um, or it's 
you know, murderers or its experts. And it's more kind of collating all the memories of the interesting people I had over the years when I was at the bar. So that's what I brought to the table in terms of my writing. Um, mm. uh, you know, and, and really the experiences that you have, and it doesn't matter what profession you're in, but what sticks with you is your um, memories of individual people, I think. Yeah, that's very interesting because, uh, you know, I know that you can see this, Helen, and so can I, but the listeners can. The, the, there is a picture of Douglas Skelton before us. Uh, can you see that, Helen? I can see that. It's a great photo. Don't you think he looks like a bit, a bit like a French detective? <laughs> Do you know, no one, I've not told anyone this because it's embarrassing, but I completely modelled Luke Kalanach on Douglas. Um I've been waiting a long time to tell the world. Yeah. Um, but but there we go. And well, I'd, I'd actually kind of guessed that because I knew that his good looking uh, side would come from his Scottish genes rather than his French genes. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm shocked. And of course, I'll be on the phone to the, the Star and the Daily Mail immediately <laughs> we finish this and say top best selling writer bases character on Deadbeat. Scotch writer. We'll have to say Scotch because it's the Daily Mail. Uh, <laughs> well, you know that, that that it's really interesting and it's strange how we all get into writing the characters that we do because, like you, I didn't want to have a stereotype really, and then I ended up with stereotypes, though they weren't really stereotypes because they did something different with them. Yeah, and b- because I stick a lot of humour in the books. Um, I think that was what made made them a bit unusual, and yeah. I and I, and I still don't think some of the the um, the senior figures in in Tartan Noir, or sometimes sometimes in the newspapers get get the fact that I am not trying to be Ian Rankin, or I'm not trying to be Denise Mina, and yeah. I'm not trying to be Val McDermott. I mean, I'm trying just to be me, and this yeah. doesn't this doesn't involve aping them, and and your books most certainly don't ape anybody. Uh, was that in your mind when you were writing them? Do you know what? And I think this is this is what people don't realise, is that there's a voice inside all of our heads. And when we start writing books, um, they are successful, really only if that voice is authentically yours. Um, mm. And I don't think any book is truly successful. And I've, I've got to say, I've read a few in the last five years or so, where you've been able to kind of pull out strand after strand, which feels borrowed. Um, I don't mean in terms of pulling out a whole plot or pulling out words. I mean that, that you know, there's a real attempt to mimic another narrative voice. Yeah. And I think it's really destructive within a book. And I know that the authors that I love best um, have their own unique voice because you can you just get into the flow and you hear it inside your own head as a reader. <clears throat> so I think that what works for each of us as writers is when we are just using our own natural narrative voice. Um, and I think if you're not, the books don't work. Um, so I always, I always run away from this thing when people say, oh, this writer's like this writer or they're trying to be this. You can't be successful like that because it's you know, faking it only takes you so far. It may, might get you a debut, um, but it doesn't get you any sort of longevity as a writer. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it, it is entirely about using your own voice when you write. And I think 
you know, sometimes it works. And I, I know that because occasionally I thought, you know what, I'm going to write something really different. I'm going to try and, you know, do this. I'm going to, and it honestly, about two chapters in, and I realise it's not working because I'm kind of trying to be something I'm not in terms of that voice. Um, yeah. And we all know when we feel it, when we're writing and it doesn't work. And I think it's always because we're not just letting that little voice in our head just take over and do its own thing. Um, and as yeah. soon as you try a certain style or you try and do a certain thing, um, it kind of sounds a bit fake. Um, sure. So no, you know, I, I don't think, I, I don't think that there's no other way that I can write. When I write, it's just me. I know that, you know, you guys, I know from your writing, it's the same. You go into it and, and you let that little voice take over. Um, and, um, you know, woe betide the writers that don't understand that because it's very, very hard to keep the fakery going long-term. Douglas has that little voice in his head all the time. Yeah. But it's That's not, not in, necessarily... Not in his head. The medication keeps it at bay, though, I'm, you know. I'm glad that's that, you know, because that was a problem. And I did, you did mention that a lot of authors have manuscripts under the bed that remain unpublished. Yeah. A lot of publishers of Douglas's work on their <laughs> list that they wish was under the bed. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> It's it's a very sad, but we'll let him ask another question since he's been relatively well behaved today. That's very kind of you, Denzel, uh, considering okay. I actually control the volume, etc. Here, so <laughs> <laughs> just just remember that it's so my you, podcast though because my name's on the thing. You've done uh, Helen. So there's there's six uh, look Kalanach novels. Is that correct? I think that that's 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 right. Yeah, I've got here, and you've done the degrees of guilt, the legal. Um, yeah. book under HS Chandler. Why did you use a, a Actually, it's, it's with a different publisher and that's just a kind of technical oh. stuff. Yeah. And it's quite funny, again, you know, readers don't understand what goes on, but you, if you're writing for two publishers at once, which, which I was, um, one publisher's working very, very hard to push one kind of brand and um, it's very hard then to push a different book in from a different direction with another publisher. So it was the agreement we reached really, because there were two different genres and two very different books. Mm -hmm. And um, we felt it was best to, to put them into two different names. Nothing very glamorous or exciting. I don't have some amazing double life where I'm, you know, at home with my kids one week and then I'm on my yacht um, with my second husband the following week. Um, mm -hmm. Sadly, there's nothing more exciting about it than that. Well, that's disappointing. That's what I had in my head. But you, you know, um, you've, you've, you've also done uh, a standalone uh, your most recent one, The Shadow Man, is that, that's a standalone, isn't it? It is a standalone. And that was, a, do you know, it was really good fun because I got to introduce a, a new central character who's a um, psychological profiler. And I actually, I got to kind of do a bucket list thing. So I um, managed to um, contact someone, a profiler within the FBI. And I sent them through all my notes before I started writing the book. And I got to send through literally everything. So my research materials, my all my character notes, my plot notes, kind of how I wanted it to end. And I they um, came on the phone and did an hour-long consultation with me, having looked up everything. And they said, right, you know, your person suffering this psychological um, uh, illness. This is what we'd expect. This is how we'd be looking. These are the processes we go through. And they went through the whole thing with me. Um, and it was amazing 
to have them work my case notes as if it was a real case. So the shadow man was great. That's a, that was a real kind of, you know, some books, you get to do things, you get opportunities to do things, which are incredibly selfishly, just a little bit of excitement for you. And that was one of those books for me. It was great fun, but I also managed to take with me one or two little characters um, from the Luke Kalanak books and um, put them in there and, and do a kind of Easter egg thing, which was also really good fun as a writer. Um, so that was a that was a really fun book. Um, uh, I didn't really care if I'd read it or not. <laughs> I just had really good fun writing it. <laughs> Can I ask, Helen, we all, if you see a clutch of writers or whatever the collective noun is, for uh, some writers around generally it's a hangover a number of hangovers of writers um you know if you're you're in it and i know you'll experience this you always hear authors complaining about something yeah. you don't speak to another author they say you they say oh it's going great i've had this done this but it's been this sold this but it's always oh, you know, I didn't like the cover of that book, or I didn't, I wasn't happy with this, or I wasn't happy with the, the last yeah. publisher, or I wasn't, do, I mean, do, do you do you get that as well? I do, we, we do suffer a bit from that. And I think, um, you know, there are a couple of different things, difficult things about being a writer, because the first is the public perception, which is that we all live these, um, I think, quite... Um, lovely lives where we kind of have the muse and we indulge ourselves and writing is a lovely process. And, um, uh, you know, then there's a tendency for us to take it to the other end of the scale, which is when we get together, we have a tendency to really moan about things. Um, and, and, and neither of which is a true picture of an author. We spend a lot of time alone. We spend a lot of time staring at a screen. There's a lot of imposter syndrome and self-doubt. But ultimately, we are all doing something we love for a living. So we're not, you know, um, working for a call centre. We're not um, working for an insurance broker. And we're not, you know, cleaning sewers and that sort of thing. So um, the reality is for most of us that we don't have a huge amount to moan about. I think what happens when we get together is that because we spend so much time on our own, uh, we finally have somebody who understands that shared, shared experience. And so all of a sudden we pour in that six months that we've sat alone with our laptop and we kind of get every little bit of irritation out of our system. Um, and, and we do tend to do that and it's a bit naughty, but the other, the flip side of that coin um, is that actually when you also get together with a group of writers, it's hugely good fun. Um, I just think that writers are basically like toddlers. Um, I think, you know, you get together with other people, um, you know, who you can finally uh, have something in common with and all your, uh, all your emotions explode out of you in one big, you know, mass. And that's the positive ones and the negative ones. Um, and then you get drunk and fall asleep. That's my experience anyway. That's certainly <laughs> Douglas's experience as well. Oh, yes. so he he leaves, up, leaves out all the other things that happened before that and just gets drunk and goes to sleep. Yeah, that, you know, that's just my that's just my day, generally. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So if you listen back in early episodes of Spooks, Helen, you will hear about Douglas, the erection of Douglas's daybed. Nice. Which, which is something only to be to be to be wondered at. It was a saga. It was a saga. It certainly was. But can now, I can I just say that, you know, Denzel um, actually does um, is the, is the exception that proves that rule, Helen, because Denzel never moans 
about anything. No. <laughs> I have a fabulous publisher who they also publish Douglas, and they're so you know, energetic, wonderful, um, dynamic. You know, the, the superlatives just aren't there to cover it. Uh, anyway. Do you know what I think is really true? I think the thing that's true about writing is that you're going to have good days and bad days, but most of it is what you make it. And it's truer than any other career because so much of it is dependent on not just your talent and your hard work, but also the attitude you go into it with. And that sounds a bit, bit you know, gross and preachy. And it's the sort of thing my kids would kind of be sticking their fingers down their throats and telling me to shut up. Um, but it it's kind of true. You can you can love the life we have, or you can moan about it, and and mm. actually most of it is is really good fun. So you just have to accept that not every single tiny bit of it is going to be you know the the dream and ideal. But most of the time, you just have to put a smile on your face and get on with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like like to ask you before I leave Douglas to have the last question because I know your, your time will be precious and we've been on for, for, for quite a while. What's your plans for the future, Help You've done different kind of different series and a standalones and under a different um, author title. What, what would you, do you have anything up your sleeve that's going to surprise us? Um, I've, well, I've got two books coming out next year. And one is a bit odd because actually it's, it's the next book in the Kalanak series, but it is going to be a it's going to be a standalone. So you very much don't have to have read anything and it, it will read as a complete standalone. And that one is um, going to be, um, you know, when your book comes out and you think people are either going to love this or they're going to hate it. It's going to be one thing or another. I don't know. There's no one's going to read it and go, it's kind of average. Yeah, it was fine. No one's going to do that. And that's a really scary book to have coming out. Um, so I've got one of those coming out in February. And honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit freaked out by it. And I haven't had this experience before. I've kind of known where the book is in the kind of, you know, in the grand scheme of how good the book is. And this one, it's, it's going to be, you know, it's either going to be a goal that everyone loves or it's going to be a complete, you know, home goal and everybody's going to be screaming at me to get off the pitch. So that one's a bit scary. Um, and then in October, I've got a standalone coming out that's um, that's set on the Isle of Mull. And um, interesting, because that's going to be a first person. I haven't done a first person for a really, really long time. So, so you know, sometimes it's little things that you change, but they end up being big things. Um, very, very, very much wanting. So I've got a partly written um, horror movie script um, based on, I love this phrase, based on true life events. Um, so I am partway through writing a, a screenplay for a horror movie. Um, that's something very, very exciting based on an experience my then extremely young son had in a pediatric ward in a hospital that was terrifying. So that's really both really good fun to write and it's freaking me out slightly. Mm. Um, so there's some exciting stuff in the mix. Um, but also next July, um, we're moving to live in Central America, in Belize, um, in a country I have never been to, where we're building our own house from scratch, which I've never done before. So there's oh. there's quite a lot going on at the moment, you know. Well, why, can I ask why Belize, uh, Helen? Well, it's the only English-speaking country um, mm -hmm. yeah. in South America, which makes life really easy. It was obviously a former 
British territory because it was British Honduras before it was Belize. So it's got British laws and the British army is still based there in part. Um, and um, there are all sorts of reasons why, I mean, quite apart from the fact we're going to be living on the beach, she says quickly and quietly, lucky me, this is why I don't get to moan about my life. Um, so we will be, we're going to be living off grid. So it's going to be living with rainwater and, you know, um, uh, solar panels and all that sort of thing. Um, uh -huh. So I am, I am going to live on a small island where they don't even have cars. You have to get around on golf carts and by boat and where there's no Amazon delivery um, and there are no supermarkets. <laughs> so okay. there's, there's quite a lot of, you know, it's equally terrifying and exciting at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an amazing thing to do. But you will be coming back to, to see us. I'll, I'll be coming back very regularly. I think the rest of my family will be coming back, you know, kind of posted out there. But um, I am firmly going to be remaining a British, um, uh, you know, resident and citizen, which means I will have to be back here for a certain amount of time each year. And my family's still here. Um, of course. Uh, I suspect, and as I usually do, I lived in California previously, and I just kind of commuted between California and Scotland. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of would bomb over to Scotland for a couple of weeks at a time and then go back. So that's what I'll be doing. It's a bit more of a hike down to Belize. Yeah, just a not, bit. I mean, honestly, not much more. It's about an hour and a half out of Miami, so it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. Wow. Um, but yes, I'm not, I'm not leaving the places I love in, by any means, no. So it's about half the, half the time you take from to drive from Campbelltown to Glasgow from Miami. <laughs> yeah. Used yeah. To, there was a there was a friend of mine who was worked in oil rigs away away back in the eighties, and his mate was in, from Dallas, and they both left the oil rig at the same time in the helicopter. And they got to Aberdeen, and it always happened that the guy from um, from Dallas was home before the guy for Campbelltown. Because <laughs> he had to go into the, the train to, go to Glasgow, then the bus to Campbellton. And this yeah. chap from Dallas would always phone up and say, hey, you, you back home yet? <laughs> that, was my, that was my Dallas accent. Douglas, another, <laughs> the final question, please. Well, I was, I was going to make an observation in that when you were telling me that there was a half-written horror script uh, that was based on a true-life incident, I, I really thought it was going to be about um, a drinking session with our mutual friend, Neil Broadfoot. So... <laughs> But then you know, I, 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 I do, I do have cinema. some. Yeah, cinema's not ready for that. No, I was going to say, you know, there are there are plenty of those experiences that if you had the stomach for it. But honestly, I don't think there's a high enough certification for that yet. I, no. Eighteen just wouldn't work. No, no. Neil, Neil Broadfoot <laughs> is, a, is another Scottish author, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and he's he's a good friend of all three of us actually. So he will. He is indeed. He, he, he is will indeed. laugh when he hears this. Right, Douglas, you're, you're on again. Yeah, one to, one more question. You, you had one more. You had one book that we've not mentioned, and it's a a, a, a terrific title: "These Lost and Broken Things," and yeah. it was it was an historical book. What was the genesis of that? Was it a different discipline to write that? That was something um, I'd written a long time ago, and um, I came back to kind of by popular demand. Um because quite a lot of people had written it. And it's, it's funny, isn't it? It's horses for courses, people like what they like. So um, I, I actually self-published it. Um, I kind of half self-published, half published because the audio book came out and that sort of thing. Um, 
Uh, I am a huge reader of historical. I love historical writing. Um, Me but, too. Um, yeah, it, it's really good. And it's it's a great thing to read beyond the genre you write. It's, you know, reading crime is a busman's holiday for all of us. <clears throat> and we're all terrified about reading crime while we're writing a book in case we pull in other influences. So I, I read historical. And it was something I wrote. And it's so it's um, kind of set in the early 1900s, which is a hugely interesting point in time because it's when they had the first ever fingerprint case in the UK um, to, to solve a criminal case. And it was the time when, you know, homes were being fitted with electricity and um, everything was changing so fast, both in terms of criminal investigations and, you know, proper detectives were kind of popping up. Um, and for me, it was, uh, and the suffragettes and I, I really kind of, you know, I love that historical period and I wanted to write in it, but again, it, it's very much a crime thriller. And I wrote that and, and sometimes you write a book because um, you're in a contract and commission to do it as part of a series. And sometimes um, if you're really lucky, you get to write something just for the absolute sheer joy of writing the stuff you love. And that one, again, that was one that I wrote just because um, it was a story and a character that I really, really wanted to write about. So um, that one is for me. And I, I do get people kind of writing going, yeah, your crime stuff's okay, but I just really like that one book, um, <laughs> which is kind <laughs> of, you know, nice and kind of a, you know, yeah. slightly yeah, upsetting. Um, but but it's really interesting, isn't it? Because And, and yeah. you know, you guys both write quite diversely. Uh, neither of you is is what I would call strictly a, a crime writer. I mean, you both have other things that you do and and going on with your writing, and and actually it it um, it keeps your writing fresh, I think, and it it just allows you to express yourself a little bit more if you're willing to go beyond the limits of um, you know being pigeonholed into one thing. Well, can I say to you, Helen, that I know a man who has been working on an historical novel which will be out quite well next year, probably sometime. And he's not too far away from us. Oh, that, now that's exciting, you see. I'm very excited. Well, it's historical for us, but not so much for him. Because he, <laughs> he was there at he the time. There. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a contemporary novel for him, but it's... Yeah. it's, it's, it's Almost it's, futuristic. It's, yeah, it's ancient history for us. <laughs> well, Helen, that's a, I, I, I want to read that. Uh, well... well That'll be three of us. Excellent. Uh, which, which is a which is almost a good start. <laughs> Helen, Helen, can I thank you so much for your time today? You've been wonderful. Uh, the latest book you have out, please, is is one for sorrow coming out in February. I'm looking forward to that one. And you know, the previous one was the Shadow Man that came out in March. Wonderful stuff. And I wish you every success with the move to Belize. It's certainly something that. Um, is unexpected, but I'm sure it'll be a brilliant adventure, which I'm, I'm sure you'll write about in due course too. I, I will be boring people ad nauseum on Twitter <laughs> and then writing about it afterwards. Fantastic stuff. Helen, thank you, thank so, you much, so much guys. for being in space. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was the wonderful Helen Fields. Helen, thank you so much for that interview. Fascinating, Douglas, and Belize. Belize. I know. Can you believe Belize? Absolutely. I can't believe Belize. I had to look it up on the atlas. <laughs> the the atlas that I had, um, and mine is from 1954, and everywhere's pink. That's uh, really impressive. 
building building their own house as well. It does sound idyllic, but it's you know when 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 she said it at first, I thought, well, Belize isn't the kind of place. You know, I, I would I've never really thought much about Belize. No, and she said Barbados or Nevis or somewhere. I may have instantly said, "What?" But I'll have to look more into. But Belize could be the end destination for all we know. Could be, could be. Uh, Helen could be leading the way. Yeah, good for Helen. I think that's 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 got to be an incredible adventure for the family. Absolutely brilliant. I'm sure it will be. I wish my father took me to Belize and just left me there. Um, but that's another torrid Myrick family story. We'll leave for another day for the memoirs. Um, the Myrick House of Horror, as my my mate Ronnie Kelly used to call, it. and that, that was who. Oh, the Myrick House he used to say, uh, where there were where there was perpetual anger at all times. Anyhow, <clears throat> that was just myself. Myself, you know, people. When I first met Fiona, Fiona's really into board games. Fiona's my dear wife, listeners, and I'd never really played a new of board games and we tried to play board games in our house but it always ended after about 10 minutes in a cacophony of bad temper and so happy days boxing days round the monopoly were not for us i can tell you not for us so i used to retreat to my bedroom and my radio and my books and that's a sad it's a sad thought it's you know it's a sad picture and and who did the bad temper come from? Well, everybody. All oh, right, okay. Everybody in our family was bad tempered. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, that's 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 just the way the way it is. I mean, I'm the only non-bad tempered person that's ever been um, created under the Myrick tagline. I have a temper that is serene. Are you I'm there? Stunned. I am stunned that you can even see it <clears throat> with a straight face. I can indeed say it with a straight face because I know it to be true. <laughs> now, a lot of listeners may not know um, because, unfortunately and sadly, in these, ta- these sad and often tragic times, many people have been in hospital that wouldn't have been in hospital before. Mm. And maybe you didn't know, but Douglas Skelton does a special film music program for hospital radio tell us about it Doug. yeah i mean anybody who knows me knows that i'm an absolute nut about film music and i use it when i'm writing as well and this has been a a love of mine for as long as i can remember and i've been doing some uh, hour-long shows for southern sound which uh, goes out to the what I still call the Southern General Hospital in Glasgow. I know it's got a new name, the, the, the Queen Elizabeth University. Queen Elizabeth Hospital. University Hospital, and um, it, it goes to there. But you can also hear it online on a Saturday afternoon at at four o'clock. And this week, uh, while some other projects have been sort of bubbling along, I, I, I've recorded another one. I was quite far ahead for a while, but now I seem to be recording them week to week, which I need to try and get out of. Um, so, but that's yeah. another one done. Another one in the can just today, and that's so on Saturday. If you are in the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow, yeah, and I dare say some of their subsidiaries, because it's a kind of, you know, it's they have other, yeah, 
you know, attached hospitals, affiliated is probably the word I'm looking for, and no doubt you'll appear there too. So if you're in hospital in that area and you may be feeling a bit down, obviously feeling unhappy because you're in hospital, if you're not, just remember not to listen to Douglas Skelton on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon and you'll probably get through it quite easily. But you can listen online. You don't need to be in the hospital. You can listen online at uh, southernsound.org.uk, I think it is. I am sure people are rushing to that URL as we speak. Yep, and putting it into their diaries. Must listen 4pm Saturdays, skeletons on. Yes, I'm sure the football listeners, sports sound and Radio 5 Live will be abandoned now in favour of the skeleton music show. Yeah, never mind the football device. And talking, talking of music, we've got a brand new theme tune too. Oh, yes. I, I don't know where it came from. It just kind of appeared in my entry with the order, use this or else. Uh, well, it was just something I, we, we had a, we, our producer of the last um, show, to let you know, our Ian Rankin show, was Catherine Halden and Ellen Cranston. They produced the the um, show last week because they were kindly did it as our publishers to help kick us off. And they, they work for our publishers very hard. Yeah. And we left it to Catherine to choose the theme tune. And we our only the, the only remit we gave her was, yeah, can we have something jazzy? I think that's what we said to her, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, she did choose something jazzy, but it was more like the funeral march that started James Bond and Live and Let Die. Wasn't it? No. <laughs> I mean, nothing like a New Orleans <laughs> jazz funeral. It, it had that vibe, Dubs. It had that vibe. And and so you said, we can't use that. That's not, that's no good. And I said, come on, Douglas, leave the poor lasses alone. They've helped us out here. But I was playing about with my MIDI, MIDI keyboard, as I do. So the whole theme tune is is of, of my, it's of my, um, of my conception. Yeah. 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 Written, yes, produced. That, that part is true. It, is, it was written, produced, conceived, recorded. Uh, and performed. By, and performed, of course, by Denzel Myrick. The rest of it was totally untrue. <clears throat> No, no, you berated that poor girl for the theme tune. I remember. I shall, I hope, I shall direct her to this podcast so she knows the truth. But I must say, Catherine Halden, very, a very, very clever uh, young lady who helps us a great deal with her publisher when we're doing. I mean, she's done some lovely um, YouTube videos from for me uh, and the books, which you can see on on you if you just type in things like uh, terms of restitution or Indeed, for any other truth, which is a marvelous video filmed by Raymond Hosey of Kintyre from the Air, narrated by Dave, David Monteith, the man responsible for the narration of the DCI daily novels, um, and written by, by Kevin and Kevin Finnerty. Yeah, Catherine's Catherine is is great. She's very very talented. She, she does some, some tremendous work. But just to make it clear. I didn't mind the first theme tune. It was somebody else, <laughs> not a million miles away from us, who moaned the face of me. Backpedaling skeleton. No, Back. 
pedaling. That's no, that's doing. it's called setting the record straight. And in this section of the podcast, this this section is called things we can't tell you about. Douglas, what things can you not tell the listeners about today? A great deal I can't tell the listeners about today. Uh, there are there are things going on. Hopefully, things that will come off. One that is definitely coming off, and one that that might. Uh, that that I can't tell you. I can say there will be another Rebecca. Uh, that's coming out next uh, June, I think it is, um, or July. I can't quite. Maybe we can. Maybe we can play that last week's theme tune just ahead of you saying that, just to introduce the listeners to that that fact. <laughs> so that will be coming out from Polygon at the beginning of next summer. Uh, but the other couple of things we can't talk about, and as as have you, you've got. You know, plates spinning there that we can't amplify. I have, I have one massive plate spinning. Yep. That I can't talk about, but hopefully I can talk about it soon. Yeah. How, how does that sound? Yes, let's hope it, we can. When it comes to plates, it's the kind of plate you would get in America if you were ordered a steak in one of these. You know, the, you know these big American steaks that yep. you get. Yep. That's the kind of plate it would be. Only it would be round, not that oval way they do it sometimes, which would be hard to spin because I don't think it would spin in its axis properly no, because it's big. Right. It's a big plate, listeners. Let's put it that way. It's a big plate. <laughs> Damn. I, keep, I just keep doing that. I can't I help it. I know. You're obsessed with Stuart Cosgrove. I know Stuart Cosgrove won't listen to this. I know he won't because he's too busy conceiving wonderful wonderful novels about um, the socio-economic situations in late 60s America through the prism of soul music um, biographies about Muhammad Ali and many other great things yep. Stuart, Stuart is a is a fine fine chap yeah, great fine chap great in fact we shall be having him on this show very soon Okay, I'll try and tell the difference between you. We'll both do, he can do Stuart, and I'll do Stuart, and we'll see. Ha <laughs> Douglas! See, <laughs> I'll decide which one of you is most like Stuart. Yeah, I'm, I, bet, I bet it's going to be me. <laughs> I bet it's going to be me. Uh, so we're busy securing more wonderful guests, like our previous two guests or on this show, Helen Fields, and last week's show with Ian Rankin promoting his book, The Dark Remains, uh, a book written along with William McIlvany, albeit posthumously, and Mr. McIlvany's part, so sadly. Mm -hmm. But I'm told, and and I haven't got my hands in the book yet. Uh, have you, Douglas? Not yet, no. I'm sure it's it's, it's a fantastic read, and I'm, I'm hearing great things about it. And uh, we also hear in the crime fiction world that the biggest writer since J.K. Rowling in terms of sales is none other than Richard Osman. Yeah. Also the tallest writer since anybody, I think. <clears throat> now, I take it that he must have been really, really young when the Osmonds were at their peak because I, I don't remember him at all. I don't remember him, but, you know, if I ever meet him, I am going to ask him, can you give us a quick chorus of Crazy Horses? <laughs> which is undoubtedly my favourite Osmond's track. How did you know? Is it my favourite Osmond's track as well? I loved it. Yeah. Oh, yes. 
Oh, that was that's that's one to be remembered. Crazy Horses by the Osmonds back in I think it would be 1973. Uh, must be around about then. I, I would I would only be a babe in arms. You were on your third job by that time. I was, yes. That was in fact I was drawing my pension by that time. <clears throat> what oh, oh, let's not talk about pensions at your age. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! There you go, Tom. I knew he'd get it in. Anyhow, thank you, listener, for tuning in to another exciting episode of Spooks. And remember, it's available across your platforms or podcast platforms. Remember to hit that notification button, subscribe, whatever it is you do, so you never miss a slick, smooth, silky episode of our fantastic podcast coming to you thanks to Houses of Steel. So, I thank my co-host, Douglas Skelton, and our guest, Helen Fields. Douglas? Yep, I'd like to thank Helen as well, and I'd also like to thank, I'd like to thank my co-host, but I just can't find it in my heart to do it. So, uh, until next time. Until next time. This has been a Houses of Steel production, and thank you, and please join us next time round. Thank you.